Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and we have arrived at a uh, an arrival, uh, a science fiction classic, an instant classic, the film Arrival. And I'm joined by uh, two very non-alien uh, co-hosts, starting with you, Matt Wallen. How are you? I'm good, but I'm very alien. Oh, okay. Well, that's fun. Uh, actually, I think Jason Diamond, our other co-host, probably has big dibs of feeling unhuman today. But uh, how are you, Jason? Good. I actually was just an alien in another country. Yes, that's what I was getting at. Yes, you've just flown in, right, from a, uh, yes. a shoot overseas. I don't know how much we can say about uh, that. Well, Toronto, so there was a lake, but if you, that's kind of overseas. Okay. No, no, well, you know, Canada, <laughs> OS. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Future home of most Americans. <laughs> Certainly home of the uh, coolest uh, prime minister or leader of the Western world. Yes, that um, was made very clear to us while we were there. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Canadians really rubbing it in Americans' face. You've got this 70-year-old, <laughs> like, Muppet, and we've got, like, uh, you know, a rock star. Hey, um, yeah. so this is uh, a film I've been really keen to talk about. It's not actually vastly heavy on visual effects work because of the fact that even though it's a sci-fi thriller, um, it has uh, a fairly modest kind of 43 million-ish kind of budget, uh, depending on what currency you're in, what time of day it is. But... Um, it is just a film that deserves a, a really good conversation. And uh, I hope my co-hosts feel the same way. Matt, did you enjoy this uh, exploration of, uh, I guess, spoiler alert, how to communicate with aliens? I, re- I really did, yeah. I, I actually had um, read the short story, the Ted Chang. Oh, really? Short story of the, uh, what is it, the story of your life, I think is what it's called. And, yeah. Uh, it's, in a, it's in actually a, a book of that was published anyway of his, of a bunch of short stories that he wrote. And, um, it's kind of the, the feature story in there. And, um, so, and when I had read the story, I really liked the story a lot and thought it was really great. And the, I think the, um, the movie, uh, you know, in the hands of, uh, this filmmaker in particular and with the, the cast and the, uh, cinematographer and the screenwriter and stuff, I feel like it's a really, it's a really pretty, faithful adaptation of the story. There's a few other things that they add uh, in the film, which makes sense, you know, things they'd have to do to kind of heighten the drama and stuff. Um, But it's great. It's a really untraditional, I thought very untraditional kind of science fiction um, style film that uh, winds up being uh, weirdly poignant uh, in the present moment, at least (laughs) in my mind. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. Now, I'm going to trash the director's name, but it's Dennis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Um, but uh, Louis Moran is the uh, VFX supervisor and we've spoken to him at FX uh, Guide and there's a podcast separately about that. Jason, um, what did you think of the film before we go any further? I loved it. I, oh, good. I, the tears were shed. I, but I, and I, I brought my 10-year-old son to see it with my brother <clears throat> and another friend and my kid absolutely loved it. He kept... Going to my wife when we when he got home, he just kept saying, "Mom, Ma, there is no time." <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so. I saw it with my uh, with my fifteen year old daughter, and she's very literate. She's like uh, literary, literary. Um, she you know reads a lot. She's uh, she's really you know incredibly into complex narratives, and she just thought it was a cracker of a film. Uh, and it's great that these films appeal to kids. I think right because I think sometimes we can be a bit patronizing and think that they only want to see superheroes and. And this is certainly not that. But um, can I loop back to you, Matt? Because as I understand it now, and I haven't read the short film, uh, the, the short story, but I actually understood it was considerably different 
um, in so far as I thought the aliens appeared on effectively TV sets in like a hundred and something houses as opposed to the kind of 12 um, hovering kind of spaceships. Yeah, I think that aspect of it was different and there are things that they add in the film too which aren't a part of the story, which the 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 my memory anyway of the short story, it's been a while since I read it, but it was that it was... It's very much more um, sort of the internal dialogue of the the uh, linguist, you know, the, the female yep. scientist played by, uh, what's her name, Amy Adams. I Amy, guess. Amy Adams. And, yeah. um, and so it's a much more kind of internal dialogue and they spend a lot of time actually um, with her discussing and talking about, you know, her, these different stages of life and different stages of memory of her daughter, you know, when she was first born, when she was a really little girl and as she grew older and they never are very clear if memory serves as to what happened to her, like how it is that she um, came to, to, to die or pass away or would come to die. Well, or pass. Dies in a I, rock I climbing, help you with that. In a rock climbing. Yeah, rock climbing yeah. She's like that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was some Which kinda... wouldn't work in the film because no. you'd have Amy looking older which would give away the plot, right? In a right. book, you can just say it's the mother and you don't have to describe that she physically looks older. So they had to make the child younger. As I understand it, is that how you understand it, Jason? Yeah, I listen. there's a great podcast, the Q&A podcast with uh, Jeff Goldsmith, I think. And he does a whole yep. thing with Eric Heiserer, the writer. And yeah, he said they made the decision, uh, one, because I think they were uh, trying to make it a little more, seem less random, like a rock climbing accident might be something you could prevent, but in a disease you can't. Uh, and then also, um, like you said, Mike, to make it so that they didn't have to show her age, they didn't tip their hand to the flash forwards. I do like that podcast with the writer, though, um, dare I say it, and I'm, I'm, I'm one to speak, it's pretty, dare I say, self-indulgent at yes. some point. I mean, like you had to listen for like bloody half an hour before um, the show even started. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, yeah, yeah. it like goes on and on and on and on about like backstory of this and backstory of that. And it's like, okay, great. But I'd really like to hear about the actual film that we're discussing. But anyway, minor criticism. <laughs> Once they do get into it, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think there are a lot of really interesting visual effects, uh, but the visual effects here are kind of intertwined with, with these sort of... Um, plot points because some of the aspects uh, that we learned from that podcast that were introduced in the filmmaking uh, stage were things like the um, sort of effectively zero gravity or gravity loop reversal thingy that has when they're going up. And I find those to be some really stunningly uh, original ideas. So as, as much as it is, I think, uh, completely uh, indebted to the short story, I think that the director here has added both uh, to the narrative in terms of giving it a filmic uh, place that works and a visual place that works with some really nice visuals. And I think that that whole thing about the gravity, I don't know why someone hadn't done that before, but man, that worked effectively. Didn't you think like when you were watching that, Jason, didn't you just like kind of go, cock? <laughs> oh, of course, why not? Yeah, I mean, all the, all the, and full credit to Bradford Young, who's, you know, one of the best, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to call him new, but one of the best uh, younger cinematographers out there. Um, just beautiful, beautiful cinematography. And, and the thing I liked about the visual effects is that they were tied to the cinematography and which isn't always the case. And, uh, uh, they were a direct, um, compliment to the visual narrative. 
uh, especially you know the, the the clouds coming over the the valley and the shape of the wasn't that just a yes. cracker of a shot? Gorgeous! I just love that shot. We and, actually, um, I I got a frame of that in the FX guide. Um, I guess show notes for the podcast I did with the VFX supervisor because I just found that to be a stunning piece of imagery, and uh, and I know that to be that that clouds do that, but man, it was used to good effect. It was well, just, not that fast though. Gen- you know, that's the thing is, no, it, it was but, it looked it was like a time lapse style move, but with with standard speed. So it kind of really just yeah. you know showed you. That I mean, there is going on with the ships and everything. Yeah, I mean, there is fog though that, like, in that one shot anyway, of the where they first see it in Mon, you know, what's supposed to be Montana, there are uh, you know low lying clouds and fog like in San Francisco on the Golden Gate and mm-hmm. in the Marin Headlands and stuff that do move uh, almost with that speed. Where it's oh, like wow. it, when you yeah, sit cool. there, you can actually watch the entire uh, all the fog rolling in and stuff. So it's it's oh, cool. pretty believable, I think. Yeah, but I guess the thing that I really liked about it is that the, the like there are a number of challenges to the visuals, not least of which is having a bloody great monolith with no sort of you know flashing lights on it, no little bits of cables or ladders or it's really hard to get scale. Yet that thing looked so big and so in the shot behind that tiny wisp of cloud at its at its base. Um, and didn't have a complex texture, but it had enough that you believed that it really was there. And to a certain extent, a, a completely featureless object like that, I think is harder to sell. I don't know what mm. you think, Matt, but it's kind of harder to sell that than a, than a normal ship. Yeah, for sure. And I think just by having like just that little bit of texture that they did add to it, you know, it does give it enough interplay, uh, you know, with the lighting in the environment. And then it's just a really very well executed uh, set of composites too in order to get that object to sit in that space and to really feel... Um, like it does have that kind of scale. And I think, you know, the other thing too, when you mentioned the the cinematography and the way that the, Jason, you're saying the cinematography really kind of feels really like it, it works well or is tied in really well with the visual effects. It kind of has a real, I kept thinking it has a real sort of naturalistic kind of lighting to it. Like they didn't feel like, aside from when they're in the ship or in the camp or whatever yeah. around the ship, everything else feels just so kind of natural light-esque. It kind of has that sort of... Um, uh, that kind of feel to it. And I think that also kind of adds to the the heightened sense of realism that you get out of the effects as well. Cause there's nothing that's kind of super composed uh, just for an effect shot until we get really up close to the ship. And, and when we start to move into it. Yeah. I mean, he shot, we, he used the uh, Bradford young used the uncoated ultra primes from cam tech in LA. And I think, I'm not a huge Ultra Prime fan normally, but when you strip those coatings off and it just makes everything, gives everything, lifts you know, the contrast a little bit and makes everything just look, uh, or lowers the contrast rather, and just gives everything kind of a, like a creamier look. And I, th- I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of ambient lighting, not a ton of like real sharp, you know, direct lighting. They're in a tent, they're outside. Like they didn't, they tried to play it for realism. But the thing I really liked back to what you were saying about the ship and the texture and everything is that when they went up inside is that the portal like you know shoot that they went through looked like it was like hewn out like somebody chipped it out and like Mm -hmm. bore a tunnel Mm -hmm. through it it wasn't like totally super slick like you know tron gateway uh and same so, too with the with the final room that they're in as well it has that same kind of like modeling in the walls and the ceiling and the floor yeah 
I just wanted to flag one plot point, if I could, before we get too much further into the visual effects, because I it, it just relates to, and I'll forget about it. It's just one of the most delightful little anecdotes from that podcast that you were talking about, Jason. Do you remember when they're discussing the whiteboard scene oh, with I love the that. sentence? It's the, so great. Do you want to describe that? Because I think yeah. it's just it's just worth uh, flagging it. So so the writer Eric Heiserer had been adapting the screenplay for like five years. And he would go back to it and back to it while he was working on other projects. And he would go back and think about a scene and how it could be better and and t- uh, tightly refine it, which I think is something that helped the script over time because based on his description of what the script was, there are things that clearly wouldn't have worked as well uh, earlier that they would start throwing away. We don't need this. We don't need this. We don't need this. And so there, he he had written a scene about how the aliens communicate and how she was trying to explain to them. And it was like super didactic and like really like, you know, uh, scientific. And and he gave it to the producers and they said, well, we don't understand this. Like this this doesn't make any sense. Like uh, we we can't use this scene. And he's like, you you don't understand. And here's why they're like, explain to us, here's why. And he said, well, when you write a sentence, it's like this and this and this. And it's basically the exact scene that she says in the movie when she's writing, you have a sentence. And then this means you want something. And she like syntax Chomsky style breaks down the sentence. And, and the producer said, what you just did right there, that's the scene, go write that. And that's the scene in the movie. Um, and it's so it's such a good scene yeah. and it's what the audience needs at that point and you don't need anything else. But it didn't feel like just raw exposition, which of course it pretty much was, but it was it was that sort of way that you, you know, that there's just that and when she says the thing about um, they got to Australia and, and uh, they pointed at, uh, well, trying to communicate with the Aboriginals at a, at a kangaroo and yeah. the uh, Aboriginal said kangaroo and that's how he got the name and... And you know what Aboriginal kangaroo actually means? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I made it up. <laughs> and later she goes, is that a true yeah. story? No. <laughs> I made it up. <laughs> yeah. Two just really my, great pieces of My favorite line is, is from towards the end after you realize it's been flashed forwards and all those things. And then you're back at the alien uh, ship which area, which is clearly the beginning of her and Jeremy Renner's relationship. And they hug and she says, I've forgotten how good it is to hold you. It hasn't yes. happened yet. It's like, it's such a great, simple line. It's like the line from Primer when he says, the guy says, uh, I think Shane says it, I, uh, are you hungry? I'm starving. I haven't eaten till later today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But can I just say, we, we, we can't start quoting great lines from other shows or you're going to lose Matt That's and I true. into a Westworld That's true. first. I haven't watched it yet. Where, where, <laughs> Oh, man. Shame yes. on you because, <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, can I just quickly ask you a question? And this is, uh, I apologize to everyone around the world listening to this, but I need to know. They're not going to miss a week, are they, because of your Thanksgiving? We're going to have a uh, Monday Westworld? I think they only I skip so. stuff that happens on on the actual holiday. Which day is the actual holiday? Tomorrow. Thir- Thursday. Tomorrow, yeah. Okay, good. So Sunday, so, Sunday we're good to go, dude. <laughs> yeah, I think in fact they probably would not miss one because every, that's like a, the end of a long weekend and everyone is, uh, you know, coming back to their thing. But I don't know if I find that. I said Monday, but because it, it is Monday here oh, right. at well, one o'clock. That's because you're in um, the future. But yes, yeah. your Sunday. Yeah, I'm in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Um, okay. So getting back to reality, and anyone that listened to our Westworld podcast would know how obsessed I am with that show. Um, 
But getting back to this film, um, okay, so let's leave for a second. Um, oh, actually, one other question I want to ask you guys. Did you pick it like way ahead or, I mean, because that's one of the things that I think about really good writing is people that are, I guess, as media savvy as you and I and, you know, whether or not we sort of see it telegraphed a million miles ahead. I, I did not. I completely confess. I was thinking that there was stuff going on but I didn't get the whole time thing um, a- until very close to when it was meant to be revealed. I mean, I didn't even, I mean, you know, it's been so long since I read the story. Like, uh, I didn't even remember. What I had remembered in my mind anyway, which I guess is totally incorrect of the story, was that it wasn't so much about uh, her um, seeing the future in terms of the experience of her daughter. I just thought it was her sort of piecing together the language in the story by having these sort of... um, tangential memories of her daughter. And so like, I, I was sort of like, huh, like I was actually in the movie. <laughs> this is kind of sad to admit, but there was a moment in the movie where I was almost confused where I was like, wait, what? Like, and then I started to piece it together, like kind of walking back to the car, what had actually transpired. So for me, it was like, not only was it a total surprise, like I think I was so dense that I didn't quite absorb it right away. Like it, it, it made a few leaps of logic in my mind that I didn't quite grasp until later on. So I didn't, we, we were, we that's were my sad sack was, story there. <laughs> we were there when she was getting the message, the Chinese message at the, uh, at the, fest, or the whatever it was, conference yeah. years later. And that's when we were like hitting each other going, oh my yeah, God, yeah, that's the yeah. thing, it's just the number. Yeah. And of course. Yeah, I mean, um, I didn't so get that's it. that's how late I got it. I, I got it like pr- pretty much right when they told you, like when, when everything yeah. kind of story-wise mm-hmm. came together. But what I like about it is that it was not telegraphed at all. And anyone who says that they got it was a flash forward is lying because it's impossible, I would think, really, based on the way that they, that they broke it out. It just is not a logical leap to say that those are flash forwards in any way until really, really close to when they kind of lay it out. But what I like that they did is they made her confused as well. She's jumping mm, around right. in time as she's realizing that she that that's happening because she's understanding the language and the language is out of time, that she's confused to the point where she has to ask the general, wait, what are you what did I say to you? Like, yes. and she's like, yes, you know, and uh, another funny anecdote from that podcast is, is so in this, when he writes the script, he says, the general says something in Mandarin and then forgot about it. And then he was, uh, they were shooting that scene and he wasn't on set and uh, Villeneuve, the director calls him and he's like, I need to know what she says, what he says in Mandarin. And he's like, I don't know. does and he's like, I need to know. It has to be accurate. The the This is the whole movie hinges on this, what she says. And so he's like, okay, okay. And he finally uh, comes up with the line, which, which, and I'll tell you what it is in a second. But he's like, then I went to see the movie and he put it in the movie with no subtitles. So unless you speak Mandarin, it doesn't matter. Yes. It still doesn't matter. But what he says, what he says is that she said in Mandarin is in uh, war... What is it in war? There are no uh, widows. There are there are no winners, only widows, or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think I think the thing for me is I totally agree. I don't think anyone who could honestly sort of you know, you know talk to it would say that they they saw it a long way ahead. 
But there was enough there that looking back, it's a rich thing to yeah. think about. Um, that you think back, you go, well, yeah, actually, they didn't lie to me. They just didn't tell me the truth. Mm-hmm. And now I think about it, yeah, okay, that makes sense kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like the sixth Why sense. did I not see the... F- yeah, why did, exactly. Sixth Sense probably did it even better, but yeah, this was pretty good. I mean, why did I not see the father? Why did I not think it was odd that the father had gone away? Yeah. You know, dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah, so okay, good. Um, here's something I wanted to talk about. So... Uh, we're obviously going to get to the language in a second, which was so beautiful because of the circular nature of the way that they um, they did that uh, diagrammatically and the iconography and the or everything about that. I'm going to discuss that in one second. But what I what I think is really interesting from that same podcast that we learned, and I think it was from that, I, I learned it from somewhere else, is that the characters were meant to be able to see in every direction because they had no forward or backwards because whatever way they went was the way they went because they didn't have a concept of time. And, and I really, that was the, this is the only point that I want to go negative on is I just don't feel the character design lived up to everything else in that the character design to me was um, unremarkable. Hmm. Uh, I, I liked the thing that hit the glass. I liked the squid stuff, but the actual bodies, the, the, the sort of nature of Abbott and Costello, I just felt like, I don't know, it was, there's an opportunity to develop a creature that had the backstory of not having a sense of time. And I think that there could have been something better than an octopus. And I know it's a heptapod, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I Matt, guess. What do you reckon? I, I mean, I, I, I could see that being a, a critique that one could have. Like, I, I get where you're coming from, but I, don't, I didn't have that feeling. I don't know. I think there was, there was something about uh, the design that I kind of liked. I thought it was, uh, it wanted, it, I thought the design was like a, a great execution of my memory of what I thought these things might look like when they're described in the book. They're very, they're very similar in terms of the, um, at least in in my mind's eye, like that they were these kind of octopus like characters. But then when there's the the one shot in particular where you see it, um, I can't remember where she is, but it's like in the in the corner She's of inside. a room with her. Oh, that one, yeah, yeah. Where it's like it's huge, and I don't know. There was something about it that way. It had almost. It seemed to have no face, really, right? And it, it looked. Um, yeah. It had this look about it, at least in terms of the shape and the formation of the larger part of the body, and then what I assume is the head, which was this thing that was sort of high up above the body, where it kind of narrowed and grew bigger again. I thought it was actually kind of a cool design because it, it didn't have any really points of reference that we could use to anthropomorphize it in any way. But at the same time too, I couldn't help but look at it and feel like it was like a whale in the sense that like, we know that a whale is uh, a highly intelligent mammal, you know, that has a, a, a large brain. And this thing felt like it kind of had that same kind of um, relationship to the human figure. And there was something about it too, in that shape and in that space where it looked like it was, um, it was in pain, you know, and I think it was important too, that it it have, um, some of those be sort of featureless in a way, uh, in that it helped, um, deliver the sense that like the, the communication was very difficult, right? Like it, it was something that wasn't going to come naturally and it was going to require some kind of other systemic kind of breakthrough in order for them to be able to even understand one another. And I thought that, I, I feel like it worked a lot. I, I, I enjoyed it. I actually had the opposite feeling. I thought as a character and creature design, it was exciting. It was so different. And it kind of mimicked the the texture and look of the ship too, in a way, and that color and that they're sort of always occluded in that kind of uh, smoky, kind of wispy space uh, behind the 
barrier. Yeah, and it was a fail for me. Jason? I loved him. Really? I, I liked him. I liked him a lot, actually. I um, Halfway through the movie, my kid turned to me and he said, I have a theory. And I was like, what is it? He said, I think the what we see of the heptapods is a very small part of a larger alien. I said, okay. And then... And then when she goes inside and you look up, you're like, oh, okay, cool. You know, like I, I like, I agree with Matt. Like, I think the, they, they reminded me of a, like a Chet Czar painting, like that he does these kind of like wrapped people with like no faces and weird things like that. It just, it has, um, I, I like that it wasn't the standard like Cloverfield rancor, you know, big wide, you know, bat mouth kind of thing that everyone defaults to like there's been no not a ton of advancement in creature design over the over the years and i like that it was an art and like an art mm. piece like it was almost like yeah, a sculpture i'm not i'm not, I'm, not buying it. I'm, I'm totally defer to you guys uh, the majority wins but it was the it was the it just looked so much like an octopus it was like a squid it was like i just didn't get it um, but that's okay. That's just me. Well, the interesting, the, if you want to go that way, the, the thing you could nitpick is that because they, their communication was completely different and they're timeless and they're, they're, their language can be read both from her side of the mirror and their side of the mirror and around in both counterclockwise and clockwise. Um, but yet when the bomb is in the thing, it's just tapping on the window like a human, like, hey, behind you, hey, tap, 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 hey, tap, tap, tap. Like that's a distinctly human kind of, uh, or at least as far as we know it, kind of thing when before they were only communicating by symbols and not really having any sort of, I mean, I guess they did the hand in the hand kind of thing. Yeah, they look behind you, there's like, a bomb. You could nitpick yeah. that yeah. as an action. Yeah, hey, turn around. And knowing that, of course, they already know that's all going to happen, right? Because they already know what's happening in time. They've come from 3,000 years or they're trying to help us help them 3,000 years in the future. Yes, which begs the question, why did they not just do something sooner to communicate the bomb? Well, there, there um, is a whole fan. There is a whole sort of like, sure. you know, yeah, uh, I mean, you could, lexicon of kind of, I, I mean, it's sort of tongue in cheek, I suppose, but where... Uh, people talk about cephalopods, uh, you know, being from another world, you know, because there's really no other creature quite like them. So I don't know. It's kind of I thought yeah. even in that regard, the design uh, felt appropriate too. Anyway, yeah. If yeah, or if Cthulhu. you if we go with your theory that it's a good design, I have no problem with the execution of the design. Like I liked the nature of the skin, as it were, when it's on the glass. I liked the the like it felt like an organic thing, not a mechanical thing. Um, and I believed that it would communicate the way that it did. It kind of seemed appropriate and um, and stuff. But can we discuss the, the whole kind of language slash mm. symbolism now? Because I thought that was ingenious. I mean, I can't remember. Was that Matt or, or Jason for the matter? Was that in the book, the circular thing? Because I think that's a cracker. I believe of an idea. so. I believe that is a part of the the construct of the book in that like she she does I don't know if they describe it as being uh the characters being elliptical like that or being, you know, sort of round forms, but they do describe the language being one that 
it it had like where a, a, the sentence structure and the way in which they communicate it has no beginning, middle, or end. That like you can start at it in any point and it communicates the same thing. So that it, it's a time the the timelessness of the communication was the same in that regard. Um, but I, but in terms of the design and the execution, I mean, I think the what they came up with. I was going to say earlier that's the one thing that if somebody was really paying attention, like you could look at the symbology of kind of that that, that every uh, character they generate at the outset isn't an ellipse. You could be like, oh, okay, so it's like out of time and we're out of sync, out of time. I could see somebody maybe drawing that conclusion if you're really into that kind of symbology, I suppose. But but the way they executed it and that was sort of like a, uh, you know, a defensive like ink spray. And then they were somehow able to, you know, have this uh, form, these shapes and forms where there were these sort of tangential kind of um you know, offshoots coming off of the main uh, elliptical form, I thought was just so cool and so interesting how when you started to see her note-taking as well, where she was sort of starting to piece together small sections and fragments and matching um, them with other pieces, it really did start to make sense. Because when you first see it, you're like, what the, you know, how is she ever going to make any sense out of that shape? But then, you know, <laughs> it, it even does start to make sense cinematically too, as a form that they can start to break out and and uh, pull into different pieces and start to, you could start to see how like, oh yeah, I guess that could be, you know, some kind of like cuneiform or but, whatever but, that you could make sense of. I mean, I guess the thing for me is when you know about the time thing, the language makes perfect sense, right? When you know about the time thing, Hannah's name makes perfect sense, right? Like there's lots of stuff that makes lots of sense. Um, there were some good misdirections. The fact that he's reading her book on the helicopter, really, you know, you assume it's the same book, right? It obviously isn't. But um, notwithstanding a couple of good, you know, cinematic misdirections for stop smartasses like me for guessing it, so much stuff makes sense when you look back at it. But I just felt like the language thing was one of the strongest. There's no start, there's no end. It mm-hmm. reads forwards or backwards. It's, it's not um, a, a sort of a, a linear or a narrative in that, um, in that sense. And then the other thing about it that was great is that it didn't look like it was, um, like it looked like it was media rich. It looked like you could communicate a complex idea through it. It wasn't like, you'd, well, hang on a second, you'd need a lot more. Because, you know, in the film Contact, which let's face it, this film totally reminded me of, there's these mm-hmm. sounds from space and they're kind of decoding it and all of a sudden they get up these diagrams, these really complicated pictures and diagrams. And I'm like, hang on a second. Like, I may not be a clever man, but it seems to me that you could send a bunch of maths over the air, but like sending these complex pictures the way they're doing with the kind of, it just sounded like such a jump like it was an unreasonable amount of data to communicate in the method that they were communicating it with, given that they were having to learn from scratch in the film Contact as well. Even with the so-called 3D primer, or primer. Um, but in this, I never had that. In this, I thought there was like a completely feasible amount of language contained in, the, in, the, in our sphere or our circle, a coffee stain, I should say. And then when there's tons of coffee stains... Um, you know, there's there's more, and then that whole thing about the volume, and and you know, you might know that as one twelfth. I mean, that was all great, but it was all very plausible given this is all completely fake. And like, that's what I thought, Jason. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my only thing similar to Contact is, and I'm not sure there's a way to solve it. Maybe there is, but there's always that sort of a team montage moment and contact doesn't have it specifically but they do jump time 
Like you're looking at a screen in cut A, and then cut B is her in the in the Senate room explaining it, where they clearly have already figured it out. And I what? And then here's the answer. And time has clearly changed, and we're in a different location. That's one way to solve it. In this case, they have the training montage type scenario, where it's a little bit of like, "Hey, we're working it out. Look at us. You know, we're totally. working it out." And then I fall asleep, and I wake up, and he's used math to figure it out, like or physics or whatever it is. You know, like it. But it's were, very difficult more, to navigate. More sensible steps here, right? Like the no, the, for sure. And also, but just from a graphic still, point of there's view, there's no. There's no there's no delineation of time, so did it take them a year? No, I think what it's supposed to be a month that they're there figuring yeah. figuring yeah. that out in that, like that training time. So you know that's not a lot of time to completely learn a new language from another planet. Really, I mean, I can't learn more than like five words or a couple sentences in Russian, you know, or or Mandarin in a month. Right, but, and that's <laughs> but okay, but but you know what I'm saying like uh, I'm, I'm with you. But moving away from the plot for a second, from a design point of view, the way that they did the the on-screen graphics um, with little sort of squares indicating things going on on the yes. coffee stains, that all looked feasible, plausible, and and Absolutely. intelligent. Like a sensible amount of stuff was happening. It wasn't like oh look, we've worked out how to read it, and this is 18 pages of a manual explaining you know right yes how to build the electrical subsystem. You wait yeah. a second. They had an app. They had an app on a computer where they could piece together yeah. words already mm-hmm. based on what they were saying, which is similar because someone would have had you, to have you, coded the app. Happened. Yeah, but if something this yeah. like actually happened, you'd get the best people in the world, and the, yeah, and they'd work their guts out, right? I mean, it's not you know, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm being I'm, I'm being facetious, <laughs> you right. know, but. But yeah, I mean, it's I, it didn't bother me because I was so engrossed in the narrative that that was not really something that I really needed to pay attention to. I, I, I think I think two things. I think the fact that they had a lot of time to sit with the script when normally these types of movies mm. are written and starting production in six weeks because they have a tentpole commitment and it doesn't matter if the script's finished, we have to start shooting. When you have a script you're sitting on and I've been developing scripts for years and every time I look at it, I go, ugh, I got to get rid of this. Ugh, this is bothering me because I'm bored by it already because I've seen it, you know, a thousand times looking at it and that's because it doesn't work, right? Like if you're bored by it, that means it doesn't work. It's not because you've read it a thousand times. So by Eric Heiserer being able to go back and refine and refine and have producers giving him proper notes like like the whiteboard scene or whatever, I think they were able to strip out exposition and then to have a director who's totally fine without giving exposition. Um, unlike other people like Christopher Nolan, who loves exposition, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's uh, refreshing. It's refreshing to see somebody make a movie for $40 million <laughs> with no exposition. Hey, uh, um, do you guys, did you guys on the, on the language thing, uh, see by perchance, the blog post uh, from Stephen Wolfen? No. Okay, so he of Wolf from Alpha, the that guy. Yeah, Stephen so Wolf the guy that does yeah. the the actual mathematical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was a consultant on the film, and it's his scrawls that we've been referring to in the sense of he kind of worked out, or I think it was his son that worked out. Um, the stuff to do with the language and, you know, what would be plausible and feasible and stuff. And it's really worth checking out. I'll put a oh, link cool. in the show notes. 
um, it's actually quick, How Might the Alien Spaceship Work is the name of the blog. And it discusses the language. It also discusses um, stuff to do with the theory of interstellar travel and a whole bunch of other stuff and establishing communication. It's it's a lengthy deep dive, as we'd say, but I like a good deep dive. And um, if you're interested in this side of things, oh my God, it is just such a uh, amazing piece. He, he consults on lots of Hollywoody type things and he's a little cynical about it, as you can imagine. But did you guys ever watch the show Numbers that used to be on, uh, I think it was on network TV. Oh, actually. no, not really. I never watched it. I saw, you know, when it was on, I remember that. Yeah. But I never well, I never watched an episode. He was the guy that worked out the math. So whenever somebody would say, you know, wait, there's a theory that says dot, 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 he'd be the guy that had produced the maths on screen so that it would, like, be vaguely feasible. Um, and this is so cool, though. He even goes into, like, he's got an equation here that describes, like, how these four parts of the shape are connected. Yeah. Like, oh, that's so neat. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. And I must admit, it's one of the aspects of the film Interstellar that I really liked, which was I got very into reading up on the theories of um, uh, kind of effectively multiverses and how you would, um, you know, navigate from uh, around and sort of physics theories. And and it is a refreshingly nice part of a film because obviously there are lots of tangents you can go off, right? You can go off on the rendering. You can go off on, you know, how they did the uh, subsurface scattering. And sometimes it's nice to go off on the maths and some of the um, the consultants behind who are talking to the visual effects guys to feed them a very uh, rich um, kind of experience so that uh, the, um, the visualizations are actually good. Because I, I think people really underestimate, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me, Matt, people really underestimate how hard it is to do on-screen visualizations that both look like tech I've never seen before, but the audience doesn't go, what is that? Nor does it look completely fake. It's actually like a real skill. Totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Well, especially so, when it's a featured part of the narrative and not just on-screen graphics or a HUD or some sort of like, you know, yeah, something here, that's here's so the code, decry- the decrypt it, and then it goes away until they decrypt it, you know. Framestore did the spaceships leaving at the end of the film, the kind of, um, I love dare that. I say, disappearing. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah, you about they that. disappear in, into the so clouds. Cool. It was beautiful. But almost the same problem, right, which is we need to make them go away. We don't want them to pop off in one frame. We want it to look like it's a bit uh, up to the audience to understand what just happened. Give me something I've never seen before and we don't have a million, bazillion bucks to, to throw at the problem. I think Framestore did an excellent job. Well, yeah, I do too. And I think what was really neat about it too is at least the first time the first time you see it, you're almost not sure what you're seeing. Like it's like, well, is it that it's it's moving like fast enough that it's displacing clouds and so there's like or it's creating, you know, water vapor like a plane would do. Like it's you're not really sure what's going on. And then they show it happen again and again and again with the other ships as they're leaving and you slowly start to or at least I did. I started yeah. to piece together visually what was going on where you're like, oh shit, they're like they're like steaming out and like disappearing into the sort of, you know, undulating uh, like um you know, mist or whatever. And it's like, God, that's just really, really cool. And so, you know, it's almost this whole thing too, right? Getting back into that thing where they're not really necessarily maybe traveling, you know, um, 
through space, like, you know, with some kind of, you know, Star Trek style warp yeah. drive space or a Star time. Wars kind of light speed. Yeah, they're like phase shifting out of time or something, you know, and it's like, oh, that's really, really cool. And so imaginative. And it tied back together too with some of the tech that we sort of saw, which at least with regards to the aliens, the tech was very much like that. It was much a, a sort of a particulate kind of effect, you know? So I thought it was really, really well done well, and just such a neat original um, design and execution. Well, too. also, if you look underwater when octopuses or octopi take off real fast, they go, whoosh, you know, they kind of leave that bubble cloud behind them. So maybe they got that from there. I think it was also maybe a nod to the, to the clouds, in uh, Close Encounters where all the big ships were always kind of masked by clouds, which was later kind of The Scott Squire's by. cloud tank. Yes, I was with him this weekend. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and we have a story on cloud tanks on FX Guide. Oh, I got to read that again. And, um, and even later overtaken by Independence Day, obviously. But, you know, clouds are a good... The clouds make sense for spaceships. It just, they move air. Even if you think yeah. about it physically, obviously they would totally. move air and atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. But to use it in a part, in a, in a disappearing act, uh, like you were saying, Matt, I, and, and even what you were saying earlier, Mike, like how to solve for not doing the thing you would normally do, uh, but making it work and then adding a narrative element to a spaceship taking off which most people also don't do. It's just, wow, it's gone. And that was awesome and looks cool. But to, I had the same reaction, Matt. It like, you kind of saw the first one and you're like, what's happening? Second one, I think I know mm -hmm. a little more about what's happening. And you saw the whole thing. You're like, okay, now I understand how they leave. So you're like constantly learning without it just being given to you. Totally. Yes. So now I mentioned Frames, so I should mention some of the other companies, Hybrid and Rodeo, uh, Oblique. These are all companies that contributed. There's actually um, a bunch of companies that were contributing, even though the film is relatively small. And that's not for any other reason than that's just how this likes to work. He just likes to have things um, set up the way. He, he, by the way, did uh, Source Code. I don't know if you guys mm. um, remember Source Code, but oh, I actually yeah. thought it was an underrated <laughs> oh, yeah. kind of film. I really I liked that. that. But Obviously, had other time um, reveal issues that uh, made it another cracker of a film. And Eternal Sunshine uh, of the Spotless Mind, which of course is yep. a, an absolute classic. Um, so, okay, so I mentioned that um, I wasn't super enthusiastic about the look of the aliens. What we didn't discuss, though, is the environment that the aliens are in. And in particular, I wanted to get, if I could, I'll start with you, Jason, the opinion of when Amy's character actually appears in it as opposed to on the other side of what you've referred to as the mirror and I'm going to call the glass. <laughs> I said glass, did I not? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you did, but whatever. Well, I just meant that their writing was mirrored yeah, behind yeah, no, no, it. But what, yeah, whatever, it's not an important point, but like... But what did you think about it? Because at the end, right, she's in yeah. the fog, as it were, yeah. which rules it out being liquid. Up until that point, I was reading it as liquid, um, uh, like a different density of, of something. Right. But anyway, leaving that aside, what did you think of that kind of white um, smoke, liquid, fog thing that they were in? Well, I I actually, I liked it. But what was interesting was they, there's a line earlier in the movie where they're saying, like, why does the door open only every, you know, X amount of time? And someone says, I think it's to, oh, yeah. I think it's to equalize the pressure for inside versus outside. And that made me think that what they were in was more of an atmospheric thing, especially because you had the clouds sort of 
cloud thing happening when you see the thing uh, in the valley for the first time. So I kind of read it as clouds or, or some sort of, you know, uh, atmosphere in there. The thing that I was most questioning was how can she breathe in there? It must be obviously some oxygen based uh, thing unless she was moving slower uh, and kind of like underwatery. So, so it could be that, that there's uh, less gravity in there because these guys are obviously so big. They must need some sort of something to help them sort of float around in there. Um, uh, Cause earth's gravity certainly wouldn't allow them to pump whatever kind of fluids in their bodies around. But um, I, I liked it. I mean, it didn't, it was wispy without being, it didn't look fake at all to me. I don't, I'm, I'm sure there had to be some atmosphere around her when they shot it practically. But um but I think it had a bit of an underwater vibe to me. I can't remember if her hair, how her hair was. That would be the giveaway. But I just kept thinking of it sort of like being like, um, you know, in the way back days, uh, there was a time in my life where I smoked way back when, when I was many years younger. And I kept thinking at a, about that space. It When she was in there, it was sort of like, it reminded me of... Um, being in an airport, you know, oh, waiting for a connecting flight, and they put you in that that little jail cell where <laughs> all the smokers would smoke, and so there was something about it to me that was it almost looked a lot looked more like cigarette smoke, you know, in a way, and the the way it was uh, over her, I, I, it wasn't anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that room is made to be so ghastly, so that uh, you know you'll just you, basically you quit keep smoking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Yes. What did you yeah. think no, about I thought, it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was flipped by her being in it because up until that point it had made a lot of sense that she wasn't in it. And so when she was in it, I was like, what am I meant to read into this? That they didn't want to get near them because they were worried about, you know, catching the flu, War of the Worlds. Was it because they just didn't trust the humans? Oh, that's not right because they die. In, one of them dies anyway because of the explosion. So what was the purpose of the wall? if not to protect somebody's health. And then that made me feel like, why am I worrying about all this? It doesn't seem important. But for a brief minute, I was like, I should worry about this because it's probably is important. Well, there are a couple of little things like that, though, that are, that, are, that are in the film anyway. It feels like, because the film is not that long. I think it's, what, 138 minutes or something, right? It's like, it's not quite, it's not near two hours if memory serves, right? It's under two hours. Is that anybody have Well, that two hours is 100, 120 <laughs> So you said a hundred two hours and eighteen <clears throat> at a hundred. No, no, yeah, I think it. But yeah, it's not. No, that, it doesn't it was, feel that long. I'm in an hour and thirty minutes. Actually. Oh yeah, um, ninety eight. I think it's. Yeah, I think that's about where it's at. But um, the the things that were a little bit clunky and weird in the story, I thought, um, in an execution, just <laughs> briefly, were the. Uh, I thought. Uh, well, I love Forrest Whitaker. I thought he was. His his dialogue and some of his exchanges about how he's got to, you know, take this up the chain of command or whatever and all this kind of stuff. Some of that was really pretty stiff and kind of wooden and uh, in terms of the writing and execution of those scenes. And then the um, uh, the story about the soldiers who are there as part of this special detail who kind of lose their mojo and think they've yeah. got to like set off a bomb. That just seemed like, what? Like, where is this coming from? Came kind of out oh, of no. nowhere. No, I, no? I, I bought that. I, yeah, with the yeah. phone call from the wife. Yeah, the Sets phone call from the up. wife. And just the whole idea of um, that, 
you would be okay how can I put this I have a lot of respect for the military and a lot of respect for military families but it is possible that you could have somebody that is gung-ho and hence goes into the military and so they could be kind of prone to shoot first you know not got not want to sit and be having inaction so yeah for a younger kind of character to feel that way I, I I'd never run with that yeah I mean they I say, they kind of say I, I just find like, it hard to believe Sorry, I was just going to say I find it hard to believe that like, you know, somebody who was assigned this really like highly unique detail would be would be so like, you know, unscrupulous and like nobody would know that like this guy is not he wouldn't have a commanding officer anywhere in the chain of command like that would know that like hey this guy's like liable to go off kind of half cocked and like you know him and his buddy bring in a bunch of you know plastic explosives or whatever I don't know I just thought that was to me that was just kind of a stretch I, I didn't buy it well they're going off you're you're adding logic to to a point of view that you wouldn't do because you it doesn't make sense for you to do it but there's plenty of people in the again not in a military sense just in general who are the shoot first ask questions later which is the classic military response in all alien movies uh so i think they were just trying to show that even though americans were trying to approach this calmly while the chinese were not or the russians were not that there's still that sentiment is is you know possible in the american response uh yeah i don't know if that's too uh analytical but no, I, no, I mean, I, that's fair. I'll, I'll admit it. I felt really bad. I literally had a wave of sadness when it occurred to me that in the current American climate, if this happened, people wouldn't be reasonable and they would be unreasonable because I don't think the current US administration would take a, uh, a uh, let's wait on this and be like, they would not be the ones talking to Chinese off the ledge. <laughs> Well, the current so, one would, but the one that maybe will come into power on January 20th wouldn't. Uh, okay, sure. I apologize for <laughs> misrepresenting your political system. It's so subtle. Just saying. Um, yeah. Not the one that was voted for by most of the people, but the one that's going to be running the country. Yeah, okay. Um, hey, uh, Jason, while we've been talking, uh, a friend called Co, who's at... Um, uh, design uh, uh, at University um, Art Center in uh, uh, in America. Anyway, he's just posted on uh, Facebook just as we were talking, and it just flashed up on my screen that he reckons that the uh, tunnel in Arrival is meant to be, or like at least reminds him of the unknown uh, pleasures uh, uh, album cover. The idea of you know the kind of oh uh, sure <laughs> I saw that yeah joy yeah. vision like, yeah. yeah I mean yeah no doubt it's uh, it's Yes, and and boy, you know, getting compared to any Joy Division album cover yeah. would be my idea of a good time from a graphic design point of view. Um, totally. Okay, so so I think on the whole we'd say like the film is batting above its uh, weight in terms of story by a, by a country mile, but also I think the visual effects, while clearly not enormous, doesn't try to do more than it should and so as a consequence succeeds. Like it's... You know, it would have been easy to have a more complicated digital character and fall over and fail. Um, or it would have been possible to have like a more elaborate this, that or the other thing and uh, and just not to be able to compete. It was almost like they didn't compete with some of these um, Independence Day level type uh, uh, films because they didn't go for those kind of shots. And as a consequence, I think it's a huge win. Um, and I think... Jason's point is well made that it works so well with the cinematography. I mean, it just is, mm -hmm. it is visually 
integrated so nicely um, and we don't get, you know, flashback dream sequency cinematography and normal cinematography and, and uh, yeah, I think, I think we're in agreement. I mean, it's a bit of a win all around. I think, it's, I think it really yeah. comes down to the ship design. I think the ship design leads the whole visual <laughs> language for the whole movie because they went with basically a skipping stone you know, which is what they're doing. It's isometrical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a skip, mm-hmm. they're skipping through time and doing their thing and, you know, leaving ripples. And I think that that sets the tone for the entire movie. Because if you came in and there was this technical kind of Borgy cube or something, like you're automatically reading, you know, confusing <laughs> and complicated, not in a negative way, but you're, you presuppose everything by the thing you see first. And you see this graceful kind of shape that's almost like something you'd see in a yoga studio or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. My, my, uh, my old colleague, uh, from ILM, I don't know if you guys know, uh, Bill George, you know, the supervisor at ILM. Yeah. He, uh, I posted something about it when I went to the movie, I just like took a picture of the poster and was like, you know, Hey, I'm at the movie. And, um, he's like, he just commented, he said, it looks like a Pringle. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. But uh, what did what did but, you guys think of uh, the one the one thing I the one question I had for you guys was there was there was like one or two shots that I wasn't sure about um, uh, from a, a execution point of view and they're minor, but I was wondering if you guys would share the sentiment or if you noticed it at all. To the uh, there's a couple shots of Chinook helicopters. Uh, it looked like like dropping off uh, gear at the sort of beginning. Yeah. Uh, of the action and there's one or two shots not when it's like in the distance and we see the, the the shot you were describing earlier Mike where the clouds are sort of rolling over the hill but there's I think one or two shots where one of the helicopters um, the camera's kind of moving around and we see one of the helicopters come in and drop off like a shipping container style looking thing and and turn and take off and I just thought the um this is a total minor nitpick, but it was something that caught my eye. Like the animation of the helicopter in terms of its um, the way it turned, like it was turning faster and in a more um, kind of animated way uh, in terms of the arc of its rotation, dropping something off and then turning around and flying the other way than I think an actual helicopter would have done. So it was one of those ones where I was like, oh, that that must not be real, you know. Did you guys notice yeah. those at all? I mean, that was all digital, and yes, I did. Though that being said, um, I mean, it's a minor thing. Yeah, but. it was. Yeah, I, I, I can't even say this. Like, I mean, obviously, you want everything to be perfect, right? But it did. It wasn't like I was. Oh my god, I'm so upset they didn't get that right. Where no, I'd no, be no, very no, upset no. if the um, if the king hadn't looked good inside the um, you know, with the creatures or something. Um, but I, but, but yeah. I do think it's, but I do think it's fair to point things like that out. Only in that, yeah, like, totally. you know, if if it's something that like you do notice, it's like, well, okay, maybe they the director wants it to like turn and leave the shot, you know, and the shot length is too short in order for it to sort of be in a way that feels physically accurate. So they're sort of making a stylistic choice or a design choice to have it do something particular. But I do think those are the kinds of things that like if you're pursuing a certain level of realism, like, you know, you, I think there is something to be said for maintaining a certain consistency throughout too, if, if you're able to. I, I agree. I think no, no, that's, it's a good point. I, th- I, I don't, I don't remember that shot specifically, but I do remember of something in the beginning, like hitting my radar, like on that, just like little mm-hmm. little animation bumps. 
uh, and I think as yeah, you were I saying up against it, the chopper yeah, a, movement, as yeah. you were saying it, I was I remembered it kind of like hitting my brain. But the movie was so good after it that I think it flushed it out of my head. Yeah, and yeah. and to be fair, like I mean, I I really loved this movie. I thought it was totally yeah. great. So great to see like a really original and like totally engrossing and arresting like serious science fiction movie. I mean, it was. I saw it the day after the election here in the United States. So it was like, yeah. I kept thinking, well, I'm, I'm driving to the theater and my, my wife wanted to come, but she had to work or something, I think. And I was just like, I, I have to go to the movies. I have to go to the movies. I need to escape into a dream world of magic. You know, like <laughs> was all I kept saying to myself. And, and it, it, it totally was the antidote for like yeah. my sort of ennui. You know, it was the absolute perfect thing to go do. So, you know, my, my quibbles are minor, like with anything that... Um, I mentioned it's like I still I love the movie as a whole and I think overall the effects were you know really really stellar and original and uh, just so much fun and worked so great with the film. I would bet I would bet yeah. that that those choppers are a mix of wonky no, animation. No, no, I was going to say a mix of wonky animation and a director's desire to have some specific action happen at. Specific, yeah. specific time and, and somebody being like, I don't care if it's like not perfect. That's where I want it to be in the shot. Just before we got on the podcast, I was watching, uh, I just was flipping through cable and Magnolia was on and I was, which I'm sort of getting a little more looking on a little more favorably these years. I didn't like it when it first came out, but uh, just looking at the cinematography and there's a scene where, right where the, sh the show is starting up again, you know, and, uh, they're sort of ping-ponging through all the characters with these with these uh, swish pants. And there's a swish pan past uh, Julianne Moore in the drugstore. And it, it went by me, and I was like, wait, something looks weird. And I rewound it, and I watched it back, and I was like, oh, her shot is completely playing in reverse. So they must have sh done a take where they swish panned from right to left, but then all the other ones mm -hmm. they did are left to right. And they throw it in there That's and funny. she only bl half blinks once and it's that half blink and somebody's passing behind her. And if you, once you realize that you see they're going backwards, but they're just a shape, but she, because she doesn't do a full blink, they were probably like, no one's going to know. It doesn't matter. We're in this emotional moment and we're going to use it. And it, I would bet that that is a part of that wonky animation for sure. As a long explanation yeah, no, for just got, using Magnolia as an explanation for visual effects and arrival. I just got this idea that somebody <laughs> somebody made an editorial decision in 1999 and they're like, I got away with it, man. Like no one noticed. And like, here we are in 2016, 17 years later, and they're listening to this and they go, oh man, yeah. we, oh, could they just let it go? <laughs> God damn, yeah, Jason died. Thanks, DVRs. No. Yeah. The yeah, fact that no, I can no, rewind to anything at any moment. Yeah. Okay, I want to now um, invoke, if I can, um, host privilege and do something that, that we used to do a lot, a lot more than we do these days and, um, and that's go down a complete rat hole. So I love the film. I think it's awesome. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to talk about um, what I hinted at earlier, which is you were up in Toronto, right? Yeah. You were shooting with, I'm not going to ask about the job, but you were shooting with a bunch of stormtroopers, right? Uh, yes, I had five, in five white Stormtrooper 8K Heliums, uh, the Weapon 8K, the ones that do 60 frames. One of them was mine because I own one. And, uh... Can I just take a second? I just got just get, wait, I'm just hyperventilating. <laughs> okay. And actually a sixth, <laughs> and a sixth one, a black one. 
with, uh, with Scott Squires. Scott Squires and Aaron Rhodes from Pixvana. And uh, like how much do I just hate you right now? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's super fun. And uh, Jeff Cronenwith was our DP, uh, which was incredible because he's obviously incredibly talented and a complete sweetheart of a human being. So, so you had like you had like a, a, a VR foot, rig, yeah, on the end of a fifty foot super techno. Right, so we're talking about 40K worth of VR, right? 48K because it's six 48K, cameras. 48K, I'm sure I did my wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Now, just loop me in. Who's Supersphere VR? Supersphere is my brother and myself, Lucas Wilson, uh, formerly of Pace Cameron and Assimilate, yeah. Um, Doug Allenstein, formerly of Visual Nomad, is a production company. Uh, my brother and I used to direct commercials for him on and off. And another partner, H.M. Wolman, who comes from the music uh, world, he used to manage Muse and Tool and My Chemical Romance and bands like that. So and URL, please? Uh, SupersphereVR.com. We've been a right. company, we've been doing VR together for about two and a half years. Um, actually, our very first job was a, a Red Dragon rig, and over the years, as the Reds have evolved, we've we've updated the rig slowly. You know, as new cameras come out, um, I can't obviously own. It's not feasible to own five or six uh, weapons. It's not. Uh, it's a five hundred thousand dollar rig. <laughs> you were going to buy it all. Uh, but uh, and I think we did the math. It's like three hundred and fifty gigabytes a minute, uh, something like that. Because uh, it must that be really range. quick to clean the cards. Uh, well, uh, because we were doing a, such a fast this turnaround, we actually we actually only recorded the takes after we used uh, VTR on set to record all the rehearsals. So we didn't burn the cards more than like four takes. Okay, but we still and shot a terabyte a, and a half, you know. Just a plug. So this is the same Supersphere that did the Michelle Obama 360, right? Yep. Yep. And we have a piece from uh, for NBC's Timeless, um, their show that's on Monday's a time travel show. I, I, that, I watched that with my kids. Yeah. Well, it's coming out in next week or later this oh. week. Are we allowed to know, is it a historical piece of It is. Timeless? It is. I can't say what it is because it hasn't come out yet. Is it in the past or in the future? Uh, it's in the past. You okay. actually, you will particularly like this this one. The episode. I didn't read the script for the episode, but I know what happens. The episode and our VR piece tie in together, and uh, and I think you'll like that one also. Okay, so so and that was jaunt. That one was shot on the jaunt camera, so we have 4K stereo yeah. 60. Yeah. So I'm putting a public plea in here to get you to commit on uh, on air that uh, we can do a story about the job you just did with Scott in Toronto whenever it finally yeah. is public. It'll be out in a month. The, it's okay, a TV. A month, it, was a, then, it was a TV commercial, a TV spot for a car company yeah. that yeah. my brother and I directed a TV spot and the VR spot, and our company produced both. The post. So is I know being what it done. is. Obviously. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just saying that I just want to do a story on FX guys. Everybody else yeah. can find out about it. Mm-hmm. But I will say, if it, with your permission, because um, they've been published on Facebook, I will include some happy snaps of yeah. the uh, of the mm-hmm. incredibly awesome 48K 
uh, sorry about that, um, VR uh, rig. And also for that matter, the um, on the uh, Facebook page for Supersphere, if anyone wants to go there, um, not only will they see the rig, but they'll also see it on the techno arm because there's a great shot there on the um, on location with uh, where you see the black one that you mentioned as well. Um, yeah. Just, uh, just I, I don't think this is telling any secrets, but it seems to me that in that rig shot, um, there's a spherical something on a USB. Oh yeah, it's arm a little Gear out. 360. Yeah, just a Samsung right. Gear 360. Only so because. Can I just ask the question. Yeah. What yep. the. F- fuck did you need that for if you got 48k what's the um, point of that for That's monitoring their iphone just on for, set next just to for checking the 360 because normally we'd use a teradex sphere which we which right. would give us a full 360 uh yeah. stitch live but i had only recently gotten it and did not have this job came up really fast and i did not have the time to integrate it into the the production pipeline properly but hang on are you saying that you're getting a live feed from that on the end of the technocrane and that's what you're looking at or you i'm getting put down I, using that no no i'm getting a live feed from the gear 360 to my samsung s7 phone in 360 right. so i can pan around on the phone from 50 feet away and 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 just get a general view you know a general feel for what the what the vr you know the 360 sphere will look like from height or wherever we're positioning it's a it's a witness camera sort of and then um normally like i said i would use the teradex sphere but in reality because we used the jetpack sdis on the back of the camera for for compactness they don't have hdmi teradex only has hdmi spheres right now the sdis are still in development and they're not really out yet which means i'd have to flip all my all five or six of my cameras to hdmi before you know, after they go to the camera cart before it's, it's just it becomes too much so we just didn't have the time to do that we were monitoring all six cameras up all six up on one screen uh you know north south east west up and down um so i can watch and- all the, i know i can obviously visually at this point can look at six feeds and piece it together in my brain and know what's crossing where and all that plus i have scott yeah. over my shoulder saying i don't please don't put that there. You're making my job harder, you know, and stuff and like that. And for those that, that don't know Scott, I don't want to sound like we're being insiderish. So Scott is an ex-ILM supervisor, incredibly nice guy um, behind software, Matt, that we were using like back in the day um, yep. uh, from like, <laughs> God, what, uh, what was the name of the software? Um, uh, I'm blanking. Um, it was the paint software. I want to see Commotion, right? Commotion, Commotion, yeah. 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 And um, not only that, but Scott has worked with us at FX PhD and uh, is about the nicest guy in the industry. But Oh, and uh, he invented the cloud, cloud tank. Yeah. And <laughs> he's forgotten For more about visual effects than I'll ever know. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to have a conversation I'm, with him and say, well, you know, I think this. And he goes, well, I really think it should be like this. And I say, well, I think it should be like this for this reason. And he goes, hmm, yeah, maybe that should, yeah, that could work. And you're like, yes. <laughs> I think you're going to say. I, and so, just one other thing, um, and we'll obviously get into this when we do the story on FX Guide. But I'm just dead curious. I've been trying to read um, by blowing up pictures and stuff and work out what lensing you've got on these. And I'm not, and I'm not necessarily even talking about this job because uh, there are other jobs you've done in the past, like the boxing one and stuff with the black um, uh, epics and stuff. Yeah. But what lensing do you tend to put on them? Well, we the Canon lenses. But. Well, we had been vacillating between the eight eight to fifteen at eight mil. Canon, but it's an F4 or the Rokinon 
eight mil, which is a three five. So you get a little juice out yeah. of it, but also it's a matter of resolution. And I know it sounds asinine at 48 K, but on the eight to 15s, you have to record it three by two resolution, which means you're really losing like a third of the sensor. So it's not actually eight K at that point. It's yep. whatever it is, six K probably. So with all five cameras, not the sixth one at a six K of previously on the 6k cameras we'd be getting a 4k area of recording which means we could make a 10k stitch with the 8ks at a 6k resolution we'd probably get somewhere in the nature of a 14k stitch ish um the rokinons actually are some these are the rokinons that i'm looking at now and the the, rokinons are on the pictures that i posted but we when it's on the techno it's the it's the uh, eight to 15s. Cause we did some measurement tests between the two with marks on the wall and on the floor and doing field of view testing and the cannons, they have the exact same horizontal field of view. Like if you were to look up at a mark on the wall and flip the lenses, they'd be the same, but on the floor, the, if you look, use that floor as a marker for field of view, because the sphere gets cropped, you know, cause it's not a VistaVision sensor yeah. or an A7S or full frame the top of the bottom of the sphere get cropped a little bit. So you, you end up with about eight more inches field of view closer to you, you know, wider uh, on the cannons than you do on the Rokinons. But the Rokinons, because they're slightly rectilinear, fill the sensor edge to edge at 8K full. So it's kind of a dance between do I want all the data or do I want the field of view? In this case, we needed the field of view because of what we were shooting. So we, we, I mean, again, we're talking apples and oranges between, you know, 8K versus 6K and whatever. Yeah. Um, But it did allow us to get better compression because uh, we were able to get down closer to 10 to 1 compression instead of 12 to 1. We were shooting at night at ISO 3200 on the heliums, which is totally usable. So, you know, we had the low light OLPFs and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, like we're really doing a dance with every bit of metadata and sort of everything we can use to get what we need. Um, we, and we have 50% or 52% overlap between the, you know, equatorial cameras. So we have, uh, you know, you're really only sort of limited by getting close enough for your feet to get chopped off if there's no down cameras. Now, you mentioned Lucas earlier, who's one of your business partners, and I'll finish up this rat hub by just flagging the fact that he also, I think, spoke at Adobe Max, Yeah, Yeah, he showed, at Adobe Max, he showed a project we did in Africa, in Rwanda, for a eyesight charity called OneSight. Um, That's a, I think it's a charity, charitable arm of Luxottica. and they provide eye care for people in third world countries. And so we sent two of our guys with a jaunt camera to Rwanda um, to tell this woman's story whose husband had passed away and her eyesight was failing and she didn't know that she could get glasses. And she gets glasses and her, eye, you know, her life completely changes and she's able to take care of her kids and provide for her family. And it's a really, I'm really proud of it. I think it's one of the best pieces we've done. Um, and yeah, we, and I, we, I think you guys are to be totally commended. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And I, and we came back with nine hours of footage from Rwanda. So we only made a four minute piece. So we're in the process of making our own, you know, not about this woman, but just sort of a more of a visual tone kind of piece about Rwanda. 
with the footage we we shot and you know i have to say the red rigs are awesome and that we you know we use rigs per the job you know i can't use the red rig on every job it's a fourteen thousand dollar a day rig and it's expensive or it could be more than that depending on what we're doing and all clients don't want that and there's a lot of posts involved it gets expensive really fast but you get incredible results you know 10 or 14k stitch that's either oversampled down to 4k for delivery on social media or whatever or uh, a 10 or 14k stitch through pixvana's fovis technology that lets you see the actual 10k at a 4k stream bit rate you know those are all juggling things you have to juggle but having you know we've been we've been really tight had a really tight partnership with jaunt for the last year and month few months and so we've had one of their cameras you know access to their cameras for a long time and that's the tool for that job to go to rwanda with a camera you can put down that has one cable to go to a battery and a laptop to change settings and then you hit record and you go like there are tools for the jobs just like every other kind of cinematic or or capture medium and so we like to tailor our productions to whatever we need to tell that story um we're not we're we're rig agnostic although we have favorites for certain things but we use what we need to tell the story yeah, no, absolutely. And look, um, we'll get into this when we um, talk about this uh, job that's coming up. It's just that I had such camera envy and it was such <laughs> camera porn that you were posting that um, I'm sure that uh, the listeners will excuse us uh, going down a rat hole. But um, also, I think it's worth reminding, uh, look, and I'm, I'm saying this in all honesty, like, and not trying to do anything, but you know, we're incredibly lucky that both you and Matt uh, take your time to do the show, right? Because you guys have very uh, serious careers uh, away from the show and we really appreciate you doing the show and your opinions are incredibly valid. And for those people that maybe newer to the show and don't know some of your backgrounds, it's worth reminding people every once in a while that they're incredibly informed opinions and not just, you know, some wannabe, um, how can I put this, uh, enthusiasts uh, waxing lyrical when they didn't know shit. So, you know, I, I... I mean, awe of the work you guys do and, and it's nice occasionally just to flag the fact that uh, your opinions are coming from a place of a really informed and very, 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 uh, you know, genuine, up-to-date technical uh, insight. So I'm looking forward to that podcast. Um, and I will say- Interview or whatever we do. I will say in, in response to that, I appreciate being on the show and I enjoy doing it. I realize it's been almost 10 years and uh, yeah. I- Love it so much that I worked till five in the morning last night in 29 degree weather, an hour and a half north of Toronto, got on a plane this afternoon at six o'clock, landed at nine, got home at 9.30 and I'm on the podcast at 11. And I- 11 p.m. 11 p.m. Uh, All those were p.m.s except for the a.m. when I got home. So it is is mutual and in, in the same respect, I appreciate. Uh, what you were saying, it, it is the same the other way. I, I love doing this show enough and so much that I will do whatever needs to be done to be to do the the shows that, that we want to do because it's, it's incredibly fun to chat with you guys, especially because I can't ever see you, either of you. <laughs> yeah, same, 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 all around. One other thing I want to flag to listeners, um, because uh, clearly in the context of this conversation, it's probably a really good time to do it. Um, there is a possibility, um, we don't have a particular plan, um, that Matt is going to do a couple of shows without me 
uh, not because we, Matt and I have had some massive falling out or that I'm in a huffy fit, but occasionally my schedule doesn't allow me to do the shows. And we know that's annoying to you guys. And Matt's uh, offered to step up and uh, host a couple if I can't do it. So um, if in a week or two's time, I suddenly don't appear um, to kill the rumors before they start, <laughs> it'll be, uh, <laughs> be because I incredibly appreciate Matt offering to step up. Um, as you guys can imagine, uh, as much as I enjoy doing the show, and I, know, and I totally do, um, I've done a few podcasts. Uh, this is the, um, I have to check the count on this one. I've done 315 FX podcasts. I think wow. we've done 212 <laughs> VFX shows. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, you know, like a lot of How many Red Centers? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there was like a, we, Jason and I, this is the same thing, we had 150 of those. Jason and I like um, wanted to have a break from those, though if you've seen my Facebook page, you know we're still very good friends and go sailing and hang out together. But it's just like, you know, people say, why don't you do more? And it's like, well, you know, kind of <laughs> doing a lot of stuff. And um, and that's before we get to some of the things that I really, really enjoy, which are the deep dive articles that I tend to um, to write on FX Guide and, and other things. So anyway, my point of bringing this up is that if in a week or – a month or whenever it is um, that I'm suddenly not on the show, uh, feel free to uh, squash any rumours that this is because I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> it's just because Matt has generously going to make sure you guys. It would be so much cooler. Shows. It would be so much cooler though if, mm. if we just played it up that we actually did have a huge falling out and it was over like the Dark Knight or something. You know that would have been really good. No, Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Scott Pilgrim. I, I think it should be because um, the thing is, we're on the same side on that. Yeah, one, that's though. true. Except for me. Yeah. I, th- the thing I think is, you should say yeah. it's because you got nominated as Trump's VFX ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, any rumor like that has a really hard time dying. And uh, I have actually witnessed those before where there's been a joke rumor about two people not getting on and people never worked out that it was a joke. So uh, I don't... Well, I fair don't enough. Ask. Yeah. So anyway, I have obviously... Yeah, nothing uh, could be further no from the truth, No intention of going away, sure. but uh, we have been working out a plan to try and get you more regular episodes and that plan pivots on the generosity of Matt in, uh, in picking up the, uh, the slack should I not be able to do it. Because, you know, we know that this show gets listened to a lot and just to flag that even one step further, um, in fact, one of the VFX supervisors for one of the shows we've done recently, uh, I was interviewing... And he was like, when are you doing my show? And I, like, I love listening to the VFX show. And, and then he started going on and we were off the air by the stage. Like we weren't, obviously didn't put this in the interview, but it was like 10 minutes going on about how much he liked the show, which we really appreciated. Though I will say it does add a certain dimension of mild panic to me to think that the supervisors are listening to the shows. I have been at ILM and had one of the senior supervisors pull me aside and not get angry at me, you understand, but just be like, oh, I can't believe you saw guys. Oh, yeah. And everyone said no one would notice and you guys are chatting about it for five minutes and you're killing me. And I'm like, <laughs> Like, sorry. <laughs> so we know that this show in particular is listened to by those of you that are sitting right now at a workstation uh, pouring over a shot that maybe few people, not no one, but fewer people perhaps than, than the general public are going to appreciate the subtlety of. We like to think we'd appreciate your shots. We appreciate you listening to our show and uh, we want to make sure that we keep them coming to you on a regular basis. Uh, so anyway, that's just... Uh, to that bit and of course having said all of that uh, I should also do as I always do each week which is Matt where can people track you down find you and uh, and stalk you sure yeah I'm on uh, Twitter at Matt Wallen or on my website which is uh, mattwallen.com now we've already talked about SphereVFX.com SuperSphere um, yeah. sorry SuperSphere uh, no SuperSphereVR.com 
Oh, bugger. Okay, let me say that again. <laughs> so if you try and write it down, I'm going to have it in the show notes. It's superspherevr.com, yeah. all one word. Although I'd love to get rid of the yeah, VR because I hate having VR in the name. It's just superspherevr.com was already taken. So we needed some sort of delineator and I hate productions. So adding productions to the right. People but, link to yeah. links to things. It's fine. Uh, Diamond Brothers, where where are you primarily? Yeah, or at? the diamondbros.com. We're both on Facebook uh, and Twitter, Jason Diamond, Josh Diamond. How is Josh, by the way? He's great. He was there right there with me. We uh yeah, I am sure he was. Say I made him sit in the client the tent trip. while I stood with Jeff. <laughs> so hang on, this is the client tent that has one <laughs> phone on a stick. No, we had the they had the monitors and everything. They saw the, oh, the okay. six up and everything. And then we did a regular okay. TV spot too. You, you know, they did just see regular TV stuff. No, no, I know. I know. I'm just trying not to talk about that because we're yeah. going to, I don't want to get, you know, have to edit this all out later. Um, but it was just too good a, a rat hole to avoid. Okay. On Twitter, I'm Mike Seymour, um, as you guys would I'm no doubt know by now. Uh, and I love getting uh, tweets. We obviously also have the VFX show on Twitter. And I don't normally mention that, just as a little confusing but there is a, a special uh twitter thing the vfx show and also as i say i'm mike seymour um but the other one i wanted to flag because we don't normally um uh you know i don't know tag them but john montgomery uh is also on uh twitter as john mont fx if you're trying to track down john um and don't go for just john mont because that's some other dude who i don't know who the hell he is but he seems to be somebody that always steals john's uh, handles before he can get to them so john mont fx um and if you're after jeff uh, so Jeff is even more confusing because he has this incredibly cool, literal, old fluorescent <laughs> sign at his house. His handle is uh, at Neon Marg, as in Neon Margarita. Now I swear it's a cocktail glass that's got a martini in it. He claims it's a margarita, but anyway, it's Neon Marg uh, as one word, and that's his. Uh, and uh, I've sat under that drinking margaritas on more occasions than I. Uh, I've seen it, and I thought it was well. a martini too. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Right, like. Totally, except for his wife, who is gorgeous and marvelous, gave it to him and said it was a margarita. So, you know, God forbid that yes. anyone should correct. That would be a major <laughs> faux pas. Um, okay, so that's it for us for this week. Uh, we have obviously coming up um, some really good episodes, including um, Beasts, as in Fabulous Beasts, as in Fantastical Beasts, and Where to Find Them, uh, if I get the name right, um, a film that I think is a cracker. Uh, somebody said to me that uh, there's there, earlier in the season we were like, we absolutely know who's going to win the Oscar because it's Jungle Book. And since then a bunch of good films have come out and they're continuing to come out. We've obviously got our eye also on a certain Star Wars film mm. coming out in mid-December uh, uh, with our friend Gareth who's directing and I think it'll be the greatest Star Wars film ever made. But there you go, that's sticking my neck up. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I have no doubt that it probably will be. Um, yeah, so there's a ton of stuff coming. We're going to keep the shows coming regular. We're going to keep them, uh, as I say, with Matt uh, doing a bunch of work. And I also want to thank Matt because he's been doing uh, additional production work as well. So thank you, Matt. Oh, my pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. A long show and a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes chat, but uh, I'm sure you guys will forgive us. Um, and if you don't, let us know, uh, as I say, through our um, Twitters or posting on FX Guide. Until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. Thanks so much, guys. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.